Happy Sabbath. I'm so happy that you've decided to spend your Sabbath study time with us as we continue our lesson on the book of Hebrews. Now, as we do every Sabbath, we're going to pray. But before we pray, we would just ask you to take a moment and consider the state of the world and maybe look at some of our partners, whether it be ADRA or another NGO that is attempting to help and aid people who are suffering in Ukraine. Also, if you're a local member of this congregation, we would invite you to consider donating to our UReach department and maybe even coming down to the concert that is going to be done in benefit of the Ukraine. For more information on that, please look at our website. And now, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we want to thank you for your many blessings. We ask that as we think about our sisters and brothers in the Ukraine and our siblings across Russia, that you may provide us a way to be not only empathetic, but also, Lord, that you would stir, stir in our hearts a desire to be agents of the kingdom. So, Lord, whatever we can do, allow us to do it thoughtfully, responsibly with care and love. We also ask that you continue guiding our conversations as we reflect upon who you are and who you've called us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The landscapes of Bavaria began to flourish not only with seeds and grain, but also with monasteries and cloisters. And it was in one of these monasteries uh, that a woman by the name of Hildegard was given up as a gift to one of the abbeys. As she began to grow and understand who God had called her to be, she felt a deep stirring in her heart, not only to be a messenger of salvation to the rest of the people that were cloistered in the convent, but also to people outside of the walls of that religious order. And so she began to establish relationships with people around her, so much so that a noble family in the area brought to her a young charge. Her name was Ricardus, and Hildegard and, and Ricardus developed this relationship, this relationship was of closeness, almost uh, like a relationship between a mother and a daughter. But what I find more, most interesting about Hildegard's approach to monasticism and to religious life is the idea that one enjoys the experiences of faith with a community. Now, it's not just a community around one. Uh, whether that be a church or a family or, in her case, a monastic order, 
But it is a community that, spa that spans through the ages. And Hildegard saw herself as an emissary, the latest in a line of envoys of grace and faith and compassion. And so her community was not only comprised of the sisters in the convent, it was also uh, made up of people like Basil or Gregory of Nyssa or even Macrina. And so I thought about how we link and how our communities link and how we are called to live faith amidst a cloud of witnesses. And I want to ask that you consider who is your community as you look around the people at your table or the people that are watching with you as you think about your local church community as you think about our Adventist pioneers, or as you reach down through time and think about the history of the church that links us to Christ and the apostles, recognize that you are the heir in a cloud of witnesses that continues to proclaim Jesus' reigns. And it is in that modality, in that motif, that I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles as we continue talking about Jesus. If you have your Bible, we're going to go to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, as we've been doing throughout this trimester. Now, you need to understand that Hebrews has followed so far a pattern. He begins always by exposition, and then he moves to, uh, towards exhortation. And you can begin to kind of tease out the flavor of what the book is about all the way when he begins to lay out the framework for the tale he's going to tell. And so I want to give us some context as we jump into Hebrews chapter 12. Think about what he writes in the second chapter, right at the beginning, in the 10th verse, and help have that help you as an interpretive lens, maybe, as you consider the rest of the story. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 reads, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, through what he suffered. And so at the very outset, you have this idea of Jesus being the pioneer of our faith. But the beauty in the book and in the exposition that the author of Hebrews leads us through is that Jesus isn't only the pioneer of our faith, he's also the perfecter of our faith. Now, how does he develop that notion? Well, if you continue going down the book, in Hebrews chapter 3, he'll begin to link the story of Jesus with the story of Israel in the wilderness. After all, there are two primary ways into, in which the history of the Jewish people is told. It is either told from the perspective of Exodus or from the perspective of exile. And as he begins to move from exposition, namely, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and into exhortation, namely, don't be like the desert-dwelling Israelites that failed in their faith. That is, in a nutshell, the whole case that he begins to lay before us as we get into chapters 3 and 4. Now, we're going to leave that contextual reality behind, and we're going to move into chapter 10. Because after he begins to talk 
and to invite us not to have a failure of faith as did the desert-dwelling Israelites, we recognize the magnificence of Jesus' sacrifice. And so chapter 10 begins to lead us through this notion. It is a notion that Christ is the ultimate enforcer of a new reality. Um, notice what he says, for example, in verse 38, as he continues to exhort, my, but my righteous one who will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. And so he begins to establish this exhortation in which he calls us to be righteous in order to live by faith, to, as he would say, persevere. And that word perseverance is going to appear time and time again through chapter 10. Uh, the first time I at least saw it as I was carefully doing a word study of the original language begins in the section that starts with verse 19. And so this exhortation to perseverance takes on a really interesting linguistic agenda because Jesus uses this picture of perseverance in order to serve as an inspiration to the church. And so this great cloud of witnesses, this great, great community of which you and, and I are, an, are heirs to, is a community that is nourished by exhortation. Sure, we have this idea of exposition. We understand the reality of what the gospel is, but it isn't until we are exhorted to live life in a certain way that we can feel the nourishment and the connection with Jesus. Now, the word, like we were saying, that is used in chapter 10 for perseverance is a word that would have been used in the ancient Greco-Roman world to describe a sporting contest. And so it's almost this idea that is connected and woven through the whole epistle. Here's the exposition. Now's the exhortation. You're on a journey, a journey that is intended to produce righteousness so that you may replicate what Jesus did. Now, the Western church has always had issues attempting to describe what this process is. The Eastern church calls it theosis. In essence, it says, yes, Jesus has fixed and solved the sin problem. Now, for the Eastern church, the problem isn't really behavioral. It is a problem of a state in which you're in shall we say. And so Jesus fixes that problem and then calls us and invites us to participate in a life of, as he says, theosis. The Adventist church picked up maybe just a little bit of that nuance because we say Jesus fixes the sin, the sin problem through justification and then invites us to live a life of sanctification. And in that sense, our understanding of how that interplay occurs is very similar to the Greek or Ethiopian or Coptic or any Orthodox church's understanding of theosis. 
Okay, enough for our context and for setting the table. Let's jump into the text. Therefore, chapter 12, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And again, this idea appears, this notion of perseverance. So picture this. Picture you are in, a, in an athletic contest, but you're running a race or you're traverse, traversing a trail that has been tread upon by countless people before you. The wonderful linguistic thing, though, that the author of Hebrews does is he links the journey of the cloud of witnesses to our journey. Now, the linguistic composition that he chooses to use in order to describe this cloud of witnesses is by using two words that are really, really fascinating. This idea of cloud in the Greek is something that would have been obscure, something that isn't very clear, something kind of amorphous. And the notion for witnesses is this idea or this word that where we get our English word martyr from. And so kind of the uh, uh, translation of this particular opening line could be, therefore, since there is kind of this obscure group of people who have already traversed this trail that remains shrouded and have suffered, make sure that you run the race faithfully. Now, what is fascinating is that there's this feedback loop. There's a feedback loop between the cloud of witnesses that give you inspiration to continue running the race and your running of that same race, that same path that completes the experience for the witnesses. And so our faith is a shared faith. It is not only lived and breathed and experienced within the confines of Adventism. It is a faith that is bigger for it extends all the way to the centuries of Christian thought. So we're connected to this cloud of witnesses. And then he says, let us throw off everything that hinders. And the word here would be in an athletic context. You want to make sure that there are no weights that can impede efficiency. In the same way that when we race, uh, the people that are racing wear aerodynamic suits or uh, that a swimmer would shave all of the hair on his or her body in order to be faster. The author of Hebrews is saying, let us remove everything that would impede us from running the race efficiently. And I think the invitation then is to begin to take a personal inventory about the things that weigh you down, about the things that cause you to bend and to buckle on your path of sanctification. You see, for the author of Hebrews, the question is not what to do with the sin problem. For him, that... Or, question has already been answered in Jesus. For him, the question is, 
What do I do in response to that? How do I let my life and my spirit be formed and conformed to the life and the spirit of Jesus? And so he asks us to begin to do some inward work. We know who God is. We know what God has done for us. Now, how do we respond to that which Christ has done? And the answer to that is internal work. You know, too often we try to invite people to a destination that we don't know. We try to invite people to participate in a life-affirming and life-giving journey called Christendom when our lives are full of doubt and sadness and suffering and pain. And so the the author of Hebrews is, is saying to us, let us take internal stock today. Let us do some internal work. I wish that we could take this as a primary framework in constructing our evangelistic approaches. Because what the author of Hebrews is saying is before you externalize the gospel, you must partake in some internal work. So here it comes again. Let us run with perseverance and The word he uses here for perseverance uh, can mean a myriad of athletic contexts. uh, contests. We translate it as race because of the context. Um, And then he keeps saying, marked out for us. So again, this notion that the, the journey has been a journey that is tread upon by a countless group of people. And here comes the beautiful part, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So the idea is, okay, Jesus has run the race. We have a litany of witnesses that have run the race. Let us make sure that we keep the goal in mind. Let me explain a little bit what the author is trying to say. For Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and Aristotle actually makes this clear clear in his expose on ethics entitled the Nicomachean Ethics, a human being can withstand any amount of suffering or pain if the goal in mind is worthy. So, for Aristotle, the end always justifies the means. If the goal is worthy, you'll be able to journey the path of suffering, Aristotle would say. The author of Hebrews is borrowing from that construct and saying that Jesus viewed the goal as worthy and worth it to endure the suffering. And that should really, really stand out in your mind. Because in essence, what he is saying is, Jesus ran the race, endured the path of suffering because the goal in mind was worth it. A lot of times we try to guilt people into recognizing the wonder of the cross. But here the author of Hebrews is saying that you, as the ultimate goal, were what kept Jesus from feeling discouraged 
as he ran the race. And again, we go back to that idea that we shared a little bit in the beginning, right? There's this feedback loop. Not only does your faith help perfect the faith of those who have run before you, your journey helps give context and meaning to Christ's journey, just as Christ's journey helps to give context and meaning to your journey. How wondrous is that? How wondrous is it that the God who created it all looks at our paths and says, in the moment of his weakness, that journey is worth it. It gives meaning to my suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, transforming then this journey of sorrow into a celebration of success. And that's the paradox of Christianity. It's a paradox that the early Christian fathers and mothers understood well. It's this idea that Christianity is a paradox between running and resting, a paradox between success and suffering, a paradox between being justified and walking into in sanctification. It's a paradox that attempts to say and state that the life for the Christian is a crown of thorns. So what do we do? How are we sanctified? Because if really what the author of Hebrews is trying to push us towards is this idea that through this journey, the point is that your life begin to replicate and mirror the life of Christ, not because you can do it on your own, but because you have allowed Christ and the witness of the church to complete you. How do I live my life? How do I engage in this path of faith development and character formation? Well, it's actually quite simple. Joey and I have the privilege of being pastors. And as Protestants, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That is to say that every one of us is in some way or another a pastor. And the word pastor comes from the Latin, the same Latin root from which you get your uh, English word shepherd. So the point is this. The point is that sanctification is a shepherding journey. And what does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd guides people through suffering and celebrates successes. Our job is to walk with one another through suffering because it is our companionship, it is our community, it is this cloud of witnesses that gives meaning to suffering, even as we hope for celebration and success. And it seems that as he begins to close this passage, that idea lingers in the air. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this idea of opposition is an idea that uh, denotes the, a notion of standing in contrast. And so it's not only 
that Jesus suffered physically, it is that rejection hurts. Rejection, loneliness, the path of suffering hurts. But the path of suffering provides meaning because we have a cloud of shepherds that walks with us through the shadow. And we have assurance in that cloud of shepherds because Christ walked at first. That is why he is the pioneer and the perfecter. And so my invitation for you as you consider Christ as, and as you consider this inner journey of allowing Christ to dwell in you, even as you abide in him, may you be part, may you find a community that can shepherd you through shadow and celebrate with you in success. Joey, haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? How was your week? It was good. It was a good week um, so far, and I um, missed you last week, although it was fun having that conversation with Philip, but uh, I, will, I just love these back and forths that we do, and I love how in this passage you, you brought in the fact that these the, the author of Hebrews is taking the themes that you found find throughout the book of Hebrews of perseverance and and faith and sanctification and he's bringing it all together in this beautiful metaphor here and that was that was so powerful how you brought that all together well thank you Joey it's uh, it's it's a really complex passage but it's complex if you just jump into the passage itself that's I think why I love this book because it kind of builds upon yeah. itself and what I what I just I'm so moved by it, and, and I think it's, it, it's been throughout this quarter that I've begun to read it, is I don't find a book that cries out more for faith development mm. and for character formation, what we in, in the Adventist church call sanctification, mm. more than this book. This mm. book says that the inner work that you do in allowing Christ to dwell in you, even as you dwell in Christ, really matters. It matters in a real sense. Uh, and so without, without it negating the power of justification and the power uh, that allows us to celebrate that we are saved through and by Christ, it also invites us to consider the inner work that we have to do as we respond to what Jesus has done. So it's, it's just a wonderful nuance that... I think too often has been overlooked not only by our church, but by the Christian church in general. Yeah, that we neglect sometimes the work that needs to be done on the inside that's foundational for anything that we do outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. So with this passage, he he uses this metaphor of a race, which I, I love because, um, man, this idea of throwing off anything that it, mm. it hinders us because oftentimes when we think about, oh, what do I need to do be saved? What we our answer to that is, well, what minimum or what we're really asking is what minimum requirement do I need to achieve in order for Christ mm -hmm. to save us? Right? Whereas that's not really what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about it's like a race. Whatever you can shed, I I, I know people that will that will 
go to extreme lengths to shed a few ounces from their bike, you know, mm-hmm. if they're in a bike race. Or like you talked about, if they're in a um, race in water, then they're, they'll shave they'll shave their the hair off their every part of their body they'll wear a you know something to cover their hair on top of the head just so that they could just get microseconds of more speed right mm-hmm. so it's saying whatever you can possibly cast off cast it off if it's hindering you in this faith journey and we don't often think about our faith journey that way right as a race where we just take everything off we don't and and i think we don't because as good protestants we we get concerned with, hey, if I start looking at what I have to do, then what 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 do we do with grace? Mm-hmm. So I think I think the nuance is important. Um, you don't you don't cast things off because you have an uncertainty of where the race ends mm. 26.1 miles if you're running a marathon is going to be 26.1 mile, miles 26.2 miles sorry um so that doesn't matter you know where the race starts when you know where the race ends and nothing that you get that you can do is going to alter the starting point or the finishing point mm. for the race so you don't cast these things off in order for you to figure out where you're starting or or where it finishes we know where we're going to end up Mm. Mm. you cast these things off because you want to run the race more efficiently you run you want to run the race more confidently you want you want to run the race more comfortably too Mm. and so i think that this this idea of character formation which he's so big on in in this chapter is exactly that it's not hey where's the race going to end it's how do i run this race more efficiently with the god-given gift of time that i have on this world Mm. and in order to do that you need to ask some really introspective questions Mm. because you have to say what is hindering me what are these things that are not allowing me to be the the person that Christ has created me to be. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sometimes a really scary question to ask, but I, I want us to make sure we understand that the nuance is, th- that it's really nuanced. We're not casting these things off because we, we think we can have a different path uh, for the race, a different starting point or a different ending point. We're doing it because we know where the race ends and we're just trying to run more efficiently. Yeah. And if we think about it, we know that's true because we don't just follow Jesus because one day he's going to take us to heaven. Although that, you know, is the ultimate goal. We follow Jesus because we want to be better, right? We want to be better people. We want to be I want to be a better father. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better pastor. I want God to make me into the person that he always envisioned me to be when he when he created me, mm-hmm. right? That's what I want. And so that journey requires for us to <clears throat> do that inner work mm-hmm. like you talked about. So what does that look like? What does that inner work look like to allow God, allow Jesus to be the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith? What mm-hmm. does that look like? That's a really good question. I think it, it starts it starts by, and it starts, I think, with radical confession. Mm. Um, and we've talked about this a while uh, and, and several times. It's something that 
we don't do really well. Mm. Um, we, I think, have gotten really good at the art of portraying ourselves in, in the way that we want to be perceived. Mm. And we do that with each other. Mm. Um, and we do that because we feel like the relational dynamics between one another are going to break down if people really see me, mm. right? If you really see who I am, yeah. you're not going to like me anymore. And I want to be loved and I want to be accepted. And so we, we portray these images of ourselves. But the problem is that these things, because they're inauthentic, they're not organic to who we are, they hinder mm. this process of character development, um, which demands authenticity. It demands vulnerability. When you're trying to form something, whether it's a better marriage or a better uh, relationship with your children, you need authenticity. As, as kind of the starting point. And mm. so I think it starts with just radically confessing yourself and being mm. vulnerable to God. And this is, I think, where faith comes in. Because you have to step out in faith and say, God, you're going to see me at my worst. Mm. This is who I am at my darkest and at my worst when I don't want to run, when I'm tired and I'm frustrated and I'm angry. Mm. But I believe that because I was worth it, mm. because Jesus saw me in at my worst and said, she or he is worth it. Wow. I can be completely transparent and honest with you. Wow. Wow. So this journey begins, this inward healing journey begins with us having the courage to look at the brokenness and identify that brokenness and be honest about it. But that's really a scary thing mm -hmm. because... Because most of our life is spent at hiding the brokenness and making sure that nobody else finds mm -hmm. it. Um, but because Jesus has shown that he loves us, he, and it's not like God doesn't know, right? God knows our brokenness and loves us and says we are valued, valuable to him anyway. We, we can have courage and enter into that. That's yeah. powerful. And there's, isn't there, there's something powerful about verbalizing that. Yeah. Right? About just saying that um i think we've lost we've lost a lot of this capacity for dialogue mm. with god um the old uh, christian fathers and mothers had this thing they called lectio divina right mm. you would read scripture with the hope or in the hope of having a dialogue with god mm. so you would read and you, were and you would listen. You would listen for God's response. Because what you were trying to do was you were trying to foster a dialogue with mm. God. I don't think we do that that well anymore. In the midst of, our, of how busy our life is, mm. we've lost the capacity to listen. And we've mm. also lost the capacity to verbalize. And so I would invite us to begin to grab on to this, these really ancient ways of doing Christianity, these 2,000 years old ways of doing Christianity where we actually verbalize. Mm. We say to God, God, I am struggling with my self-image because I can't accept myself mm. um, or whatever that brokenness is. God, mm. I am struggling with anger because I feel forgotten or I don't feel you've seen me, whatever it is. Mm. 
verbalize that to God and then listen, listen for what God is saying. Because if we listen, God is a God who still speaks Mm. and you will feel the spirit moving and you will feel the spirit talking. And the beauty is, Joey, I think if we believe that the spirit is still active in our lives, we realize that that healing process that you're talking about isn't something that you or I are going to do. It's something that the spirit is going to do in me. Yeah. Um, But I can't listen to the prescription um, that the Spirit is attempting to give me because I'm constantly talking and distracted. Yeah, it's so true that constantly talking and distracted. I mean, that's the state of our lives right Mm -hmm. now. I mean, we we are so uncomfortable not being distracted that whenever we're waiting in line, the first thing we do is what? We take out our phones, right? We're constantly trying to stimulate ourselves, trying to distract ourselves. And not taking that time to really reflect on the brokenness inside. You know, I I remember um, someone saying that a lot of times the fights that we have are the same fights, but with different people. Mm -hmm. Because our brokenness, when it rubs up against somebody else, and we all have those people. We have certain types of people that really just trigger us, Mm -hmm. right? And when, when our brokenness rubs up against somebody else's, it just makes us react very strongly. Mm. So we have the same fights over and over and over again with lots of different people who all trigger us in the same way. And if we think about, I mean, even our relationship with our spouses, a lot of times we tend to have similar fights. It's about the same thing over and over again, but we don't actually take the time to think about what is at the root of that. What's causing me to have this fight over and over? We don't examine it. We just try to get over that one issue and then move on without really healing the brokenness that's inside that's causing us to be triggered in that way, to to react and and respond in those ways. Yeah, that brokenness. And so you're saying that we need to take that time to create a space where we can actually examine that. Is that right? Yeah, no. And I think you've said it perfectly, right? That we do. We do have these issues that keep popping up time and time and time again. What I find funny is now this sounds new agey or like uh, mental health or personal growth stuff, which I mean, all of that is great. But this isn't new. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been doing this as a church for 2000 years. Yeah. Um, this idea of doing the inner work that didn't start with with therapy. This this is the. Um, the early church called it contemplation. You would go inside and you would look inside and you would plead for the spirit to show you where that brokenness was. Mm. Um, this idea of dialoguing and, and opening up your heart um, and, and sharing what you needed, oratio, mm-hmm. that would, that's what it was. It was to elevate as a, as, as a prayer of worship our needs and then to listen for mm-hmm. what God was doing. And then you talked a little bit about how busy we get, right? And mm-hmm. I was reading um, two things that really stuck out to me. There was a a little documentary made about, I think it was the 2010 LA Lakers who won uh, the NBA championship. And one of their players, Meta World Peace, also known as Ron Artest, uh, played a prominent role in that that particular journey. And uh, he had 
long, long, long and well-documented struggles with mental health. And so when he, when they won, he was one of the players interviewed and he actually credited his therapist Mm. uh, to teach him in the world in vogue now is mindfulness. How Mm. do I calm my, myself down? How do I open up a space in the middle of the busyness not to be unhurried? And so everybody was like, oh, that's great. Um, LeBron James, who, who we all know is a prominent sports figure invested in this app called Headspace, which also tries to teach you the same thing. And it's all over. It's, it's huge. And people are connecting with this. Well, that's not new. Yeah. <laughs> that's, this is this old path that, that we have learned, that we, that we as Christians know. What is Jesus doing? As the crowds were pressing upon him, you see time and time in the gospel said, say, and he retreated from, from, mm-hmm. from them. So yeah, he would have this heavy investment of relationships and then he would pull back. And the early church called this meditatio, this, mm-hmm. this moment where you try to silence mm-hmm. the busyness and quiet the hurry mm-hmm. in order to be fully in God's presence. All these things have happened before the pathways are set out. Mm-hmm. Um, we just we just have forgotten them. And so I think it's great that through our study together, uh, both scripture and you and I are, are attempting to remind us to these old journeys. Um, and that's, I think, the power of the cloud of witnesses, that it connects you to this rich history that the church has. That's so true. I mean, and and throughout um, scripture, you're, you're told, so we cry out, search my heart, O God, make it ever true, right? So this idea of, of searching our hearts, this idea of contemplating and, and looking into our hearts and allowing God to make a transformation um, is 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 found throughout scripture and we're you know in in psalms be still and be know still. that i am god right again this idea of stilling ourselves so that we can see god for who he really is mm-hmm. because you're right those voices out there are so loud that often we can't hear the holy spirit speaking to us and we don't take the time to examine the brokenness within mm-hmm. ourselves and maybe maybe that's part of the, our strategy right to actually avoid examining ourselves by paying attention to all the other brokenness it's our our avoidance strategy to make ourselves feel good we watch a video on netflix or we you know we go on the news cycle or we watch a funny video on youtube or, or something something to distract us from the brokenness that's actually occurring inside of us. Mm-hmm. And then allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us about that brokenness and how he wants to repair it. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I find most appealing about, we call it sanctification again, it's nothing new. It's something that the Eastern Church has been doing for a thousand years. They call it theosis, this idea of God lives inside you mm-hmm. and you live inside God. Mm-hmm. And that has repercussions. I mean, just imagine if, you know, I have somebody, the the person that I love the most in my home and there's a leak in the ceiling and I don't, uh, it's the way it works. You're just going to get wet, I guess. Um, the, the idea of inner work is because this, this is God's house. Mm-hmm. And so just like I am called to live and abide in God, God God is dwelling and living and breathing in in me. And Mm -hmm. so I think you tend to uh, the garden, as 
as the early Christians would say, you tend to the garden mm. because God walks and frolics among the flowers. Wow, I love that imagery. <laughs> tend to the garden because God walks among the flowers. That's so beautiful. And again, this this can sound new agey, but that's not what this is. This no. Is, because in scripture, we're told that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? I this is not, so we're not saying that, um, that, you know, when we are, that we are the house of God, it's not something that's outside of scripture. And it's not definitely not saying that we are God, right? right? Which, this is not pantheism, no. right? This is, this is us saying that since God resides in us, that we are, we are the temple of God, our bodies are the temple of God then, and our minds. And so we need, we have, God wants to clean up. God wants to create to fix, to make us all that he always intended us to be. Yeah. Yeah, Joey. And I think, thank you for bringing that up. That's another nuance um, that that I think keeps us on the orthodox side mm. of heresy. We're not pantheistic, mm. but we are panentheistic. Mm. And that nuance is important to make. So we don't believe that all things are God, but we do believe that God is in all things. Mm. And so, and we have this idea, right? We have this idea throughout scripture. Uh, you are made in the image of God. You are created as a temple to God. Uh, Jesus, again, will tell his disciples that I want to I dwell inside you, that you mm -hmm. may dwell in me. And so we believe that God is in all things, even if we strongly would say, God, it, mm -hmm. all things are not God. And so that, I think, is a really important nuance that we, that we ought to note. Yeah. So what, what implication does that have for us? Um, we, we submit to this journey where we take off the weight and we allow God to, to transform us and to change us and to grow to us. Um, how, does that, how does that connect with this paradox of suffering and celebration that you were talking mm. about? So does that mean that is that process a process of suffering and celebration? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, think about it. When you start self-examining and you finally realize that all these issues that you're talking about mm. weren't other people's fault, yeah. but that you also hold responsibility. You have to hold a space in responsibility. Now, that can't be pleasant. Yeah. But I... I, I I know because I've I've done this. I've actually mm. had to say, you know what? It was my bad. Yeah. I know that, yes, it might be uncomfortable. It might be painful in the moment, but it leads to so much more real and authentic and healthy relationships. And mm. so I think that's the paradox of celebration and suffering. Mm. Yes, recognizing coming to terms with that brokenness like you call it inside us is painful mm. but it leads to a more authentic and closely knitted relationship with god you know when you say that it reminds me of moses's journey right because moses had a 40-year journey in the wilderness where god was dealing with his brokenness right mm. and he could have avoided all that if he just decided i'm just going to stay a prince in egypt mm -hmm. right I, I, I'm going to avoid the pain. I'm going to avoid this suffering. I'm going to avoid all of this heartache. And I'm just going to live a pampered life in Egypt. And instead, that's not what he did. He, he, he followed, and that's why he's commended in Hebrews 11, right? He followed with faith God. He made tragic mistakes because of his brokenness, but God still journeyed with him. And eventually became, he became this, this leader, this, this leader of the Israelite community, this 
And he didn't have an easy life. Mm-hmm. He had a really hard life. I, I, you know, sometimes I wonder if I were Moses and I knew where, where that journey would take me to the wilderness and then, you know, suffering and leading the Israelites, these, these, these very terrible travel companions for, for 40 <laughs> years and then eventually to die without entering the promised land. If I knew all of that, would I choose that path rather than choosing the path of staying as a pampered prince in Egypt? I don't know. I mean, it is a much more difficult path. And yet that's the path we need to take if we're going to grow yeah. and change. Joey, that's a, it's a paradoxical path. As you were speaking, I thought about um, we, again, for 2,000 years, have had two ways of talking about the journey. Hmm. Uh, via positiva, via negativa. I'm not going to do the Greek because y'all have had enough Greek for one day. <laughs> um, so the, the via positiva is where is God? So you try to find God. In 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 Moses' case, yes, in the journey, think about the burning bush where God is evident. Um, and so there's there's a lot, I think, of, of scriptural examples where you can actually feel and grasp where God is. And that's the celebration part of our faith experience. But the church has always believed that there's also another way, mm. another path that leads you to deeper knowledge of God. And that's the via negativa, mm. where God, where is God or where does God seem absent? Um, and that's the suffering piece. So to stay with the Moses motif, if the via positiva, if the where is um, would be the burning bush experience, the via negativa would be Moses going up Sinai and it's all covered in darkness and you Mm. can't see God, but you're going to move by faith. Mm. And I think you need both of those realities. You Mm. need the celebration and the light and the joy, but you're also going to need the suffering and the darkness and the not knowing. And it is when you, when you're able to, to know God through both of those experiences that you can say with absolute certainty, Christ is the pioneer and the perfecter of my faith. Wow, you know, that reminds me of that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, faith is taking the first step when you can't see the whole mm. staircase, right? Um, we do see enough that we can take that first step, mm-hmm. but we have no idea where the staircase will lead. And yet because of who God is and who it is that is calling us on this journey, because we trust him so much, we're willing to follow him up that staircase. Powerfully said. Joey, I've had fun. It's good to be back. Um, Can you pray us out? Yes. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you, first of all, for having faith in us. Having faith in us enough to come down to this earth and to live and to die, not even knowing if any of us would choose to follow you. I mean, we didn't have a very good track record of following you. And yet you did that for us. So help us to have faith in you, someone who has an impeccable track record, that we can trust you even though you lead us through moments of suffering and celebration, that you will lead us to a good place, to a better place, to a place where we are whole and healed. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So my dear friend, whether it be day or night, light or dark, spring or fall, Jesus remains pioneer and perfecter. God give you a happy Sabbath and we'll see you next week. 